Good afternoon. Hope you had a good lunch. Your stomachs are full. Your rain's full too. I was afraid of that. Not too full. Not, oh, not too full? <coughs> is, is that right? Not, not too full? Uh, empty heads are better, is what you're saying? <laughs> what is what you say? <laughs> well, I, I just don't want your heads to explode. Uh, not here anyway. Not here. <laughs> Do it somewhere else. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about causality and, and karma a little bit. Now, the Buddha was very very clear in affirming the principle of causality. Everything's due to causes and conditions, and everything is causally interconnected. Now, we're going to talk about causality and karma, and um, so the Buddha presented that in a little bit different way than it had been thought of previously. There was a, was a wanderer by the name of Sivaka who approached the Buddha and he said, all the Brahmins tell us that absolutely everything is due to karma. Now, karma means action. Actually, on the face of it, this statement would fit perfectly with what the Buddha was teaching, that everything is due to causes and conditions. So in that regard, that's essentially to say that everything is due to karma, with karma meaning condition, meaning causes, meaning actions in general, therefore causes. You could indeed say that. But the Buddha didn't say that. To Srivaka, he said no. And the reason he said no is although the word karma means action, already by that point in history, the word had come to designate not just action in general, but a personal action which produced moral consequences on the individual that committed the action. And so... What Shivaka was saying, is it true then that anything that happens to a person is a moral consequence of something that that person did? And the Buddha's answer was very clear, no, it's not. And in Buddhism, there are five kinds of causality defined, three that are very familiar to us. Karma is the fourth. And the fifth one is Dharma. It's how, it's the way that the practice of the Dharma can bring us to transcend karma and achieve liberation. The first three are very familiar, though. The first is physical causality, physics and chemistry, action and reaction, and all that kind of good stuff. The second is biological. And, of course, as we know now, and as seems that at least some people understood back then, it, that is an extension of physical causality. 
living organisms arise out of uh, inanimate matter. And at the, at the basic functioning of, of chemistry, biology is, does partake of the physical level of causality. And then some living organisms have brains and minds. And this introduces a new kind of causality into the world. And that's because an organism with a mind does things. And it does things according to the kind of mind it has. Which, of course, is determined biologically, which, of course, ultimately depends on physics. And the fourth kind of causality has to do with the fact that some minds, some minds are capable of learning and changing and basically programming themselves. Not all minds. There are a lot of minds that they come into existence and they're going to behave in a particular way no matter what. It's not going to change. But human minds and some other minds are subject to change and they're actually self-changing. We create who we are as we go along. Right? We learn and change. Which is why everybody with a human mind doesn't act exactly the same way as everybody else with a human mind. And that is, that's karma. That's the domain of karma. And then, of course, as we're going to talk about a little bit later, we can use karma to shape and mold our minds so that we can overcome the delusion that we've been talking about and we can become liberated, we can achieve wisdom, and so on and so forth. And so that's the fifth level of causality, dharma. And so, it's because all of these different kinds of causality are operating simultaneously. When somebody does something, the consequences of action are going to depend on all of the different types of causality that happen to be involved in that cause and result sequence. And likewise, anything that happens to a person isn't entirely the result of something they did in the past. A lot of it is due to these other three kinds of causality. So, karma is the most important one for our purposes. But it's very important that we don't confuse it. Because if we confuse karma with the other kinds of causality, it's going to be difficult to understand and it's going to be difficult to make use of in the way that we need to make use of it. What the Buddha did, as I said, the word karma means action. At the, t- at the time of the Buddha, it had come to mean the actions of an individual that produced moral consequences for the same individual. So what he decided to do was to redefine the word karma by simply saying, when I say karma, I mean intention. And so that's what you need to think. Now you need to make a distinction between the action itself, or an act itself, and the intention behind the act. See, these are two distinct things. 
That was one of those wonderful, novel ways of presenting things that the Buddha came up with that nobody had thought of before. Okay, so now actions have consequences. And we speak of those as the fruits of the action. But pala is the fruit of the action. Intentions also have consequences other than the actions that they bring about. And those consequences are called upaka, which means the fruition of the intention, the fruition of the uh, karma. So we have, we have actions, we have the intention behind the actions. Actions produce fruits, and the intentions produce uh, ripening. The intentions ripen. That's a ripening of karma. Okay? The other thing. I, I should mention is there is there is a mistake that has become fairly common, which is confusing the consequences of an action or the ripening of an intention as karma, calling that karma, calling the result karma. It's not the result. Okay, it's the karma is the intention. And the action that produces consequences is the action. So we can talk about the ripening of karma, and we can talk about the results or consequences of fruits of actions. But let's try to keep that straight so that we, there's no... It doesn't make it any harder to understand than it might already be. Did you say that the, the, you said to call it not karma but fruit? The consequence of an action are called in the Pali, they're called Pala, P-H-A-L-A, which means fruit. We'll call it results or consequences, or we might call it fruit just to remind ourselves, but it's not the same thing as vipaka. Karma has vipaka. Karma doesn't have fruit. Actions have fruit. Actions don't have vipaka. Yes? Before the Buddha made the shift from defining karma as action to intention was different? Before then, it was it was very confused. Okay. And actually, amongst many people since then, it's remained very confused. <laughs> okay. okay. Um. And one of the things we want to do this weekend is clear up some of that confusion. Yeah. Okay, so the karma is intention, right? Yeah. And I'm looking here, the intention behind the action are called vipaka. You just said that karma doesn't have vipaka. So now I'm logically... No, karma does have vipaka. But Actions have don't have vipaka. Got it. Okay. I'm, I'm with you. Okay. All right. So. Yes. <clears throat> so when, when I'm trying to... Um, understand and be more with the reality of the world and what is. And for years, 
um, I worked with children who were severely abused, um, physically, sexually, mentally. And I would um, become quite upset <laughs> when I would hear people say that wrongly, you know, this is the wrong way to say that, you know, that was their karma, that yeah, there was something, right. you know, that they did. So I'm, you know, I'm clear that that's not so. But when I look at the schema, uh, so everything has causes and conditions. So this abuse that these uh, children experienced have causes and conditions. And when I look at the schema of the five things, how do I... How do I sort of understand? Well, the, the thing is that what happened to these children is due to causes and conditions, but the causes and conditions weren't something the children did. Correct. I understand that. Yeah. That, that That's almost like the consequences of, of some other intentions yeah. and actions that came their way. That's right. But where... Um, So, but the, but everything has a cause. So, is the cause just intergenerational transmission of this pain and suffering that that people haven't been able to deal with? That's definitely one of the causes. That that certainly is. I mean, in that particular example, we know that children who have been abused are at great risk of growing up to be abusers. And that many abusers were in fact abused as children. So there's a kind of a sequence of causality there that's passing from one individual to another. I mean, and it's probably a combination then of physical, biological, mental? It's a combination of all of those. More simply, Let's put it this way. It's a combination of actions and their consequences and karma and its ripening. Both are operating in these things. Uh, two children are abused. Only one adult becomes an abuser. Okay. The, the actions and the consequences weren't different, but the karma and the apocalypse. Make sense? Yeah. Deep questions. We don't like superficialities in here. <laughs> so is ripening then the consequence? I mean, it's not a consequence, but is it the, what ultimately occurs? What's the difference between a ripening and a consequence? Well, that's good that you ask. What does it mean when a karma ripens? Um, karma is intention. Your intentions are rooted, they have either wholesome or unwholesome roots. Unwholesome roots are desire, aversion, and ignorance. Wholesome roots are their opposites. Now, the vipaka of an unwholesome karma is that that being, at a later point, is more firmly entrapped by delusion, desire, and aversion, more likely to act in future intentions to be driven by desire and aversion, 
and is going to suffer more because of more delusion, desire, and aversion. That's how karma ripens. Okay? Let me use an example. So, I get mad at you, and so I shoot you. <laughs> okay. There's some immediate consequences. That's the other thing. When we look at actions, we find they have immediate and mediated consequences. They have two kinds. So the immediate consequence for me of shooting you is I might feel good, or at least all the aversion I had towards you is released, right? The immediate consequence is, ah, got him. <laughs> the mediated consequence, the mediated consequence is that the police are going to come and put handcuffs on me, put me in jail, lock me up, who knows, right? That's a longer-term consequence. That latter is due to combination of physical causes, biological causes, mental causes, let's see, well, pulling the trigger set in motion a bunch of physical causes and the bullet went through you. Due to biological causality, poking a hole in your body was not beneficial to it. <laughs> Mental causality is that society I'm a part of doesn't approve of such things and has certain people assigned to deal with it when it happens, and so those certain people following mental causality went and did their job and put the handcuffs on me and took me to jail. So, now, let's look at this. My being arrested was not my karma. It's the fruits of my actions. It's the consequences of my actions determined by physical and biological and mental causality. Um, that you've been shot is not the result of your karma. It's the, it's a, a fruit of my action. Now, the fact that I shot you, now that's the vipaka. That is the ripening of my karma. Um, you're, from the point of view of the victim, you've got shot. Do you have any responsibility in that? Is your being shot a moral consequence of something you did? Did I shoot you because you shot somebody else in a previous lifetime? Or last week? It could have been last week. If you shot somebody else last week and they're a good friend of mine, that, yeah. Then you bear some responsibility for getting shot. Well, for that matter, you might have said something that made me really mad, that's why I shot you. In which case, yeah, you do have, you know, your getting shot was a fruit of an action that you performed. But it wasn't necessarily. I mean, you could have been a completely innocent bystander. I was just mad at the world and decided to shoot you because you were there. So your getting shot is not necessarily a moral consequence of anything that you've ever done in this life or any other life. But the fact that I shot you that's the result of my karma. I was probably acting out of, uh, most certainly, it was acting out of delusion, either desire or aversion or both. 
And so it's the result of my karma, but not only that, the intention, the desire and aversion and delusion that were behind my action, that intention created new karma for me. So now, as I walk away from that event, or am carried away in irons, mm. I am a person who has reinforced a lot of unwholesome internal characteristics. The attachment to my delusion, the tendency to act out of it, and everything else. And I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer because of that. Because craving and delusion lead to suffering. So no matter what, I'm going to suffer because of that. But I'm also going to suffer because of the consequences of my action. So, you see, these two things happen together, but we can think of them very differently. And there's a reason for thinking of them differently. Because, because karma plays a really, really important role in everything as human beings that we do. Indeed, it actually creates who we are. And this path, the only hope we have of achieving the things that are promised in the third truth is by taking advantage of and using the law of karma. It's the only thing that makes it possible. If we understand the law of karma and we make use of it, we can overcome delusion, we can break the shackles of desire and aversion, and we can become liberated because of karma. So karma is really, really, really important. It's not important because karma accounts for absolutely everything that happens everywhere to anyone, anytime. And it doesn't need to. That's beside the point and unnecessary. Yes? Do unvirtuous acts have karmic causality to them? Well, let's talk about virtuous and unvirtuous acts and virtuous and unvirtuous karma. Now, there's an interesting thing right away. Virtuous acts don't necessarily involve virtuous karma, and unvirtuous acts don't necessarily involve unvirtuous karma. The Buddhist, when he made that distinction, we spelled it out. A little quote from him here, if I can find it. When friends and noble disciple understands the unwholesome, the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the unwholesome, in that way, he is one of right view, whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in the Dharma, and has arrived at his true Dharma. What does that mean? What is the wholesome and the unwholesome? The wholesome and the unwholesome is referring to here are the actions. An action is wholesome or unwholesome according to its consequences, no matter why you did it. An action is unwholesome if it causes harm and suffering to yourself or others. An action is wholesome if it does the opposite. And this makes sense. This is no nothing different than our ordinary way of thinking. If you do things that hurt other people, bad. You do things that are good for other people, good. Right? Yeah. Well, what if the person who you were about to shoot, the reason you shot them is because they told you that you were beautiful and you fundamentally, you know, had some, that, that was in disagreement with your self-perception and so you were angry that they were calling you beautiful. Would that, would their calling you beautiful be 
an unwholesome act given it resulted in you shooting them? <laughs> well, normally, now here, here is a good thing. Let, let's, it's good that we work our way through the simple cases first before we get to the complicated. But by and large, if we were making up a list of wholesome and unwholesome acts, we'd put calling somebody beautiful in the wholesome side, wouldn't we? That's what I thought before what you just said. Well, and, and we would. We still would. Those acts that are generically wholesome. Now, they can have unexpected consequences. And looking back, we can say, oh, well, as, as acts go, that was not a wholesome act because it caused you to get shot. <laughs> We're not talking about karma here. It's not, it could be, it probably was karmically wholesome. Probably was karmically wholesome because you were trying to do a nice thing for someone by saying you're beautiful. Oh, it might have been karmically unwholesome. You might have been trying to uh, lure them, exploit them, something. You know, it might have been some ulterior motive. It might not have been. But the karma behind it is quite separate from the action. And actions are judged by their consequences. So before the fact, we can categorize actions according to their predicted consequences. Sometimes there will be cases where it doesn't turn out the way we thought, and we might have to, after the fact, recategorize the action. But that doesn't matter. That's fine. This is only for this is only for cataloging and indexing purposes. Anyway, you're still going to say that in general we ought to go around trying to do unwholesome or trying to do wholesome acts, even though sometimes they have unexpected consequences. And we should refrain from unwholesome acts, even though sometimes they might turn out to have a good result. So in general. No problem there. That principle is good, firm, solid. So the wholesome and the unwholesome that we're talking about here are actions. And the Buddha said, for instance, and he gave ten, destroying life, that's unwholesome. Taking what is not given, that's unwholesome. Sexual misconduct, that's unwholesome. False speech, that's unwholesome. Divisive speech, harsh speech, idle speech, and gossip. Covetedness is unwholesome. Ill will is unwholesome, that's a mental act. Wrong views in general produce bad consequences, so wrong views are unwholesome. Wrong views lead to all kinds of other wrong things. So these are physical, verbal, and mental acts that we can look at and we can categorize and say, yep, wholesome, unwholesome, based on their predicted and most likely consequences. Yeah? I'm sorry, can you? Elaborate more on wrong views. Like, maybe define that a little bit more. What is meant by wrong views? Because to me, that's Well, how about uh, what I mean by this? Their right views are the things that we're talking about, saying things as they really are, understanding them as they really are. And so, wrong views are anything that's not a right view, would be a wrong view. But the other, the other way, in terms of the discussion we're having right now, though, any view that leads to unwholesome consequences, even if we didn't expect it, after the fact we'd say, well, that was the wrong view, because look what happened. So 
So is a wrong view something that you would also interject into, say, a societal context of this is what we consider as a society we live in to be right, so therefore you do something contrary to that is wrong, and that becomes the wrong view? I mean, there's two frameworks that we're talking about. One is sort of yeah. personal growth. The other is we're part of an integrated collective consciousness. Well, uh, there, there is a social and cultural factor that's going to come into it. There are things that the only reason they're wrong is because, or let's put it this way, the only thing they're, the only reason they're wrong is because they do cause harm, but the only reason they cause harm is because of pre-existing social values and conventions. They're not inherently so. We're not concerned with those kinds of distinctions. You know, basically the definition the Buddha is, is, is saying, suggesting that you use is if an action is going to cause harm to yourself or someone else, then it's probably an unwholesome action, even though it might have a surprise outcome, and vice versa. If it's going to do something, if it looks like it's going to do something beneficial for yourself or others, then it's probably a wholesome action, although once again, it can have a surprise outcome. So we're not getting into anything complicated or difficult or mysterious here. Just, just like you would have thought before you came here, your actions can be categorized as good or bad, wholesome or unwholesome, on the basis of the consequences that they produce. And here's some standard examples. And the criteria, the criteria is, does it cause injury or harm to yourself or someone else? And we're going to refine that as we go along. Because remember, there is a certain amount of injury, harm, pain, suffering that is going to happen in the world no matter what. Okay, So at some point we're going to have to revise this a little bit and recognize that, well, some of our actions from a very technical perspective might be unwholesome because they do cause some harm, but on the other hand there really isn't any viable alternative. And so our categorization isn't helpful to us there. Then there are other kinds of actions. Shooting people in general is unwholesome. None of us have any problem with that. But then, like we talked about, I guess it was yesterday, if somebody's going to kill ten other people, ah, new situation. Might, might or might not. It's no longer clear. Don't shoot. Ten people die. Shoot one person is dies or is injured, and ten people will. But there's a huge gray area. We just got to work in the black and white to prepare ourselves to be able to deal with the gray. And we don't want to go into the gray burd burdened with any um, notions like it, it absolutely must be this way. We walk into a situation where somebody's about to kill a hundred people if we don't do something, but the only way we can do something is to hurt them, and we have sworn to our last breath that we won't do anything to hurt any being. Wow, that's not a very good thing to bring in that situation. Yeah? Well, I'm, I guess I'm thinking in terms of intention and... and well, you didn't, let's get to intention. We're still on action. Well, okay, then, then I'll wait. Okay, good. I think that's the best idea.
<laughs> so so the, the the opposites of these these are just examples of unwholesome acts. It's not meant to be an exhaustive catalog. But the opposites obviously are to uh, to abstain from these is definitely going to be more wholesome than acting on them. And uh, as far as the um, the mental acts here, um, you know, it, it, it's the same thing. It's their opposite. Now, abstaining is all mental action. So let's let's look at actual physical and verbal actions that would be of an opposite kind, and they just basically take the same list. If this drawing life is an example of an unwholesome action, then obviously giving protection, aid, and comfort is an example of a, 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 an overt action that is clearly its opposite, right? And the same thing with all of these things. One thing you'll notice, this is something Buddha made clear in another sutra at another time, uh, ver- wholesome verbal acts, speaking the truth, only it doesn't just say speaking the truth, period. It says speaking the truth, but only when it is beneficial and only at the right time. And that is because the truth can be harmful. And even when the truth is beneficial, there's a right time for it. If I'm making a fool of myself, I'd rather you tell me in private instead of in front of everybody. Right? So, it's not just a blanket always say the truth. And this is, some, this is the kind of mistake that some people make. They're all the Buddha said we should always tell the truth. That's why I have to tell you you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> just keeping the precepts. <laughs> and that's why he shot you. <laughs> no wonder he shot you. <laughs> so... So these are all going back to the principle of is it causing harm, injury, things like that. Okay. So, all right. This is all the. This is all really simple, straightforward. I don't think we hit on anything that's difficult or complicated in this. Not too different than what your thinking was before. You can evaluate your actions now. Of course, we can think of all kinds of examples of things that according to that strict definition, might seem to be uh, unwholesome, but actually in the long run, on the larger scale, are wholesome. And I'm not going to dwell on this very much, but you notice that I made a distinction between the, the immediate and the mediated consequences. Well, this, this is where, you know, doctors do things that sometimes hurt. In the long run, it makes you well. And this could apply, be applied to, to shooting the person that's going to kill all these other people and all of these other kinds of examples. So consequences aren't simple. You can have good consequences and bad consequences mixed. And what starts out bad can turn good and vice versa. So actions really, they require more than just sort of a 
planning a program in your brain and knee-jerk reaction to every situation that comes along. But definitely we have some clear, easy to understand guidelines to guide us in our actions. And this will come up again when we talk about virtue. Now let's get to the intentions. Your, your actions may have consequences for you, or they may not. You know, I might shoot you and get away from it, get away with it. But your intentions, you cannot get away from the consequences of your intentions. Because they happen inside here. And what your intentions do is they, they change the way you are in a particular way. Your biggest problem is that you're overwhelmed by delusion and you act out of desire and aversion. Your intentions arise out of desire and aversion. So anytime you are coming from that place of delusion, desire, and aversion, you're reinforcing that. And you're going to be more likely, just a simple example, you get, you get angry, and if somehow or another getting angry in this situation is beneficial to you, and you like the way it turned out, you're more likely to get angry next time. And after a while it becomes a habit, and even when it makes your life miserable, you, I can't help it. I just, every time somebody says something like that, I get angry. That's the way karma works. Every time, the delusion, the delusion is the delusion that I am a separate self. I need to struggle to get what I need. My happiness depends on getting things that are out there. That's the delusion. Why would you do any of these unwholesome acts? Why would you destroy life or take what is not given or use false speech, things like that? Well, the answer is quite simple. The reason we do that is we're trying to satisfy a desire or an aversion, right? We tell lies because we want to get something we don't have or we want to avoid some consequence, right? Yeah. So the, reason, the, intentions, the intentions behind all these wholesome and unwholesome actions are what's most important in terms of the consequences on us. Even if I do something good, even if I give somebody something, if I have an ulterior motive that's rooted in selfish desire, I have empowered the delusion in my own mind. And the more often I do that, the more self-centered I'm going to become. And the more I'm going to suffer as a consequence of that. Yeah. Does it matter if the intentions are conscious or unconscious? Well, not in this regard. Now, that's a very good question, which is why mindfulness is so incredibly important. Intentions start out conscious, but then when they become habits, they're now unconscious. You keep doing these things, and when you do it, it it's coming from the same place, and it's reinforcing that same place. Even though you're not processing it consciously. And so, in, in that regard, it doesn't. But in order to make a change, 
in order to replace some of your unwholesome karma, some of your bad intentions with good intentions, consciousness has to be there. You have to be, you, first of all, you have to be conscious that you're about to, that you're, you're holding an unwholesome intention. And then you have to be able and willing to let go of that unwholesome intention, at the very least, and if possible, try to replace it with one that's more wholesome. To the degree that you do that, you've made some new good karma. Every time you restrain yourself from acting, not out of fear of consequences, or not because God or somebody else said it was good or bad, every time you refrain from acting because you realize it's karmically unwholesome, you've made some good karma for yourself. Just, you know, the, the uh, refraining from killing any living being, okay? Mm -hmm. How do we live without killing plants or... Well, that's what we were saying earlier. You can't. Yeah. You can't. So, these are, these are simplistic guidelines in kind of a black and white format. The reality is that there's a whole lot of gray, and we need to navigate in that. Basically, you look at an action and you look at its consequences, and you do need to do the best to you can to predict the consequences. You do. But you're going to be wrong sometimes. And there's sometimes things that are going to be unavoidable. You know, sometimes the doctor has to hurt the patient. Sometimes things are going to, you know, they're going to, on the surface, appear to be inconsistent with the underlying principle, but in a larger sense, they're not. But that's only one component of it. The other is your intention behind it. So, and you may do something that is a good action, and you may do it out of evil intentions. You may do something that is an unwholesome action, but your intentions were good. They're two different things. They interact, they're interdependent in some way, but they're not the same thing. Mm. Yeah. I'm quite sure this is too complicated for us to even touch on, but it occurs to me that it would be interesting to help to think about how to help people who are doing this, who are, who are doing actions on delusion, desire, and aversion, and then they become habits for them, and they're on a very slippery slope, and perhaps people in this room know people that do that, and it's painful to watch because it's a slippery slope. And yeah. I guess I'm just saying, I suppose there's just too, that's too big a topic for us, but it just brings it up for me. Yeah. What, what you're talking about is you are seeing from a particular perspective, you're able to see the harm that somebody is doing themselves. Okay? But an awakened being would come into this room and see, you're all on a slippery slope. <laughs> you're all on the same slippery slope. But just, you, you haven't picked up quite as much speed on the downhill run. <laughs> 
Well, no, anything you can do to help a person like that to become aware. But, they, you know, just as, just as what this uh, discussion of the law of karma, all it can, the only way it can help you is if you internalize it and make use of it. All you can do for somebody else is to help them to understand what they're doing so that they can change it. And then it comes to speak the truth only when it's beneficial and only at the right time. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's interesting. That, that's that's critical. That is critical. That's very important. So much so that there's a whole sutra just about that. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to believe that how we feel about a behavior would be some sort of guide to doing better next time. But it seems as if when we do something and later say, oh, that didn't work out, uh, it's too late. It's too late in one sense, but it's not in another. If you, if you do something that is both produces unwholesome consequences and is karmically unwholesome, afterwards you can reflect on that and you can feel genuine remorse for doing that. And if you do, that you're creating, that's a mental act. It's not going to undo the physical act. But it's a mental act, and the intention behind it is a wholesome one, karmically. So you, by looking back on that and sincerely and honestly regretting it, that's you're creating good karma for yourself. This is there's something that I've talked about before. I'm not going to talk about it now. It's called the four powers, and that's the first of the four powers, is to sincerely regret something that you did. When in that act of sincere regret, in that mental act of sincere regret, you're making some good karma to counteract the bad karma that you made when you did the act. Uh, that doesn't work out for the guy who got shot, though. <laughs> no. But, you know, a lot of times, and, and this, you know, if we continue with the four powers, one of the, one of the, the four powers is you do whatever you can to make things right. You know, so if he didn't die, you can pay the hospital bill. There's, I don't know. <laughs> Not a good example, but <laughs> there are there are a lot of ways that when we recognize that we have have caused somebody harm or injury, that we can do something. We, some steps, even when we hurt somebody's feelings, we can apologize, and it's important to do that. And when you do that, you're making really good karma for yourself which will make you less likely to say something like that in the future, and if you do, more likely to apologize in the future as well. Yeah. So you're using the word karma in a slightly different way, or what it sounds like a different way, when you say you're creating good karma, because I'm, I was holding in my mind, okay, karma is intention. Karma so, is intention, that's right. And so when you're making good karma for yourself... You're making, uh, you're making a good intention, and so you're going to reap the benefits of that down the road. Mm -hmm. Okay? When it ripens. When it ripens. Yeah, that karma will ripen. So you make the karma in the process of the mental act, in the process of the sincere regret, in the process of 
asking forgiveness or, or doing something. Okay. So that's where, that's where you're making the karma, and then the, the uh, results come later. So, intentions rooted in greed, aversion, and aversion serve to reinforce delusion, moving us away from wisdom. And this is precisely what makes them karmically unwholesome. Think of this path. We, you know, we can either move deeper into delusion or we can move towards wisdom. And every intention is going to steer you in one way or the other. And so, karmically wholesome intentions move you farther from delusion, closer to wisdom. And that quote from the Buddha earlier, I'll continue it, after he had enumerated the ten things that we've already enumerated and their opposite, he said, when a noble disciple has thus understood the unwholesome, the root of the unwholesome, the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, he entirely abandons the underlying tendency to lust. He abolishes the underlying tendency to aversion. He extirpates the underlying tendency to view and conceit I am. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge here and now makes an end of suffering. In this way, too, a noble disciple is one of right view, etc. You see what he's saying here is that the wholesome and the unwholesome are the acts and their consequences. But when we're talking about karma, we're talking about the roots of the wholesome and the roots of the unwholesome. That's the intentions. And the intentions are either driving you deeper into delusion, craving, and suffering, or else they are moving you away from that and towards wisdom and liberation from craving and suffering. That's what makes them karmically wholesome. Yeah. The more I come to see my own mind, the more I come to see how mixed my intentions or motives are. Yes, yes, yes. So, you know, I want to give something, and I see on one hand, I really do have this, oh, that would benefit that person, and it's a wonderful thing to do, and I would feel good, they would feel good. Then there's a sneaky sort of, hmm, I wonder how much more they'll like me because I gave them that thing. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder what future benefits mm -hmm. I might reap because of that. You know, so I see that. So then I'm like, well, maybe I should just not give it. Right? <laughs> just set it down, not give it, and just leave it alone. Or maybe, what do you do? Try to strengthen the positive intention and just wash mm -hmm. down the negative or I don't know. There, there, there may be some <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear that. Well there may be some there may be some occasions where the best thing to do is to abandon it. But I think more often than not, uh, it's it's going to be the case that if you have the mindfulness and the clear comprehension to recognize your mixed intentions, and this is actually where we're going to be, what we're going to talk about next is practices to do that. And what you want to do is to let go of the unwholesome intention and to reinforce the wholesome intention. And that's, that is, by and large, the best way to do things. But what uh, 
I didn't even see who made that comment, but the comment that was made was actually right on. Because it's easy to give gifts with either a conscious or even an unconscious expectation of return and reward. Which is a really good reason, if you suspect that you may that your gift giving may be unconsciously motivated in a selfish way, there's a simple solution. You give anonymously. Right? Yeah? You know, that's not a new concept. I think a lot of religions have that. If you're doing good deeds, and the more people that know about it, kind of the less of the light shines on you, and it's really better to have no one know about it. Yeah, you're right. It's not a new concept. It's only new if you haven't been doing it. <laughs> it's only new if you haven't already been doing it. Well, this is one of the things we need to promote, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. The world. Yeah, that's right. That's one of the things we need to promote. Yeah, but it, it doesn't mean that all all you know what could happen from this is we could all agree, yeah, this is really true. Therefore, all of our giving should be done anonymously. And then if ever we see somebody giving non-anonymously, we'll look down on them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah it's that karma from being judgmental. It's so tasty. <laughs> yeah. so, always got to be careful, but yeah. So I think I'm a little confused as to how the difference between karma ripening and the consequences of our actions. In other words, what did you say happens when karma ripens? Or is that... Okay. Other, other things that happen. Uh, yes. Mental, intentional? The ripening of karma takes the form of who we are. We create ourselves through our karma. And so the karma of the intention behind your action today will ripen as the kind of person you are and the kind of intentions you act out of tomorrow. Uh, and that's something that I, I included in this handout. Um, what the Buddha had to say about that. Let me see. Yes, the Buddha said, I am the owner of my karma, I inherit my karma, I am born of my karma, I am linked to my karma, I live supported by my karma, whatever karma I create, whether good or evil, that I shall inherit. What he was trying to get across here, and unfortunately the meaning hasn't always been understood that clearly, is that we create ourselves through our karma. Who and what we are is the result of our karma. And so the idea that what happens to you is the result of your karma, that's not, that's not the right view. Things happen to you for all kinds of reason. But who they happen to, that's the result of your karma. And the degree to which you suffer, that's the result of your karma. Or the degree to which what happens to you is not capable of making you suffer. Your karma is responsible for that. To the degree that you respond to what happens to you with anger, that's your karma. But to the degree that you respond to what happens to you with loving kindness, compassion, generosity, that's your karma. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. When, when you, when he says, when Buddha says, I'm born to my karma, I'm linked to my karma, when he says, I'm born to my karma, so is that a result of his responsibility of being born into an environment? Or, because if a baby comes in and a lot of this is learned as we go, mm -hmm. behavior, so then what is the karma when you were born? Well, one of the things about the way the Buddha spoke is that uh, we are constantly creating ourselves moment by moment. Every morning when you wake up, you are reborn. And even every moment, you are reborn anew. You keep recreating yourself. So he's not necessarily saying anything at all about, you know... You came with karma points. Yeah, that's right. In every moment, you are born of your karma. already, but if you did, I, I, I missed it and I, I need a little clarification. Um, in, in a person's life, if things are continually going wrong, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about a particular person yeah. that I, mm -hmm. I know fairly well, and um, a really fine human being, but things just happen. Mm -hmm. Health issues, accidents, etc. Seems to be a never-ending round. So, do we have to be careful about equating karma with living with poor intentions or unwholesome attentions? Or are we speaking about how we deal with what happens to us? How we respond to happenstance. Okay. Well, what we've been talking about so far, we're talking about how you deal with it, how you respond to it. There are things that happen that are not a consequence of something that the person that did them previously did. But their karma ripens as how they respond to it. Whether it demolishes them or whether they just sail right through it. That's their karma. Now, we can take it to another level here and recognize that all the things that happen to us, they don't happen by accident. Many of them are consequences of our own actions and some of them are consequences of our karma. Not without, not making karma mean anything different than we've already said. But if your car breaks down, it might be because you didn't change the oil. You're responsible for that. It didn't just happen to you. Right? And that night might not even be the best example, but you could think of all kinds of examples of we are responsible for the things for, for many of the things that happen to us. And it's not it's not the results of our karma. It's the it's the fruits of our actions operating through physical and biological and mental causality. You know, we say things, it offends people, they do or say things back. There's all kinds of ways that we're responsible for what happens to us other than karma. Karma plays a role too. 
we create the kind of person we are, and the kind of person we are is somebody who's going to choose to do or not do certain things, put themselves in certain circumstances, or put themselves in other circumstances, right? So, um, if you create yourself, and, and I'm speaking karma now, you create yourself to be a certain kind of a person, that might mean that you're, you're the kind of person who's in a place you shouldn't be, and you get beat up as a result. Now, in that case, your karma played a big role. And the example I sometimes use is you're, you, you've made yourself into a really cheap, penny-pinching person, even though you've got a stack of dollar bills in your wallet. And because you've made yourself into that kind of person, you decide to walk home on this dark street at night, and you get mugged. Somebody takes all your dollar bills and beats you up. It's the result of your karma that you chose to walk down that street. And it's, it's, and it's the result of your, your desire and aversion that puts you there. It's your craving. It's your craving. So there, the, what I wanted to get at is I want you to understand the difference between karma and the other kinds of causality. And now that you understand that, you can recognize that in terms of what happens to you, both of these things are operating. And so some of the things that happen to you have nothing to do with your karma, and some of the things do, and some of the things are a combination. But your karma is what creates who you are. If you make good karma, you're moving towards enlightenment. If you make bad karma, you're moving away from enlightenment. And of course, we do a lot of two steps forward and one step back, maybe sometimes one step forward and two steps back. Is there any place in this worldview for luck? For luck? Yeah. Well, I, know, I know somebody who seems to be the world's least lucky human. <laughs> well, as he said, is there, is there a place in any of this for luck? Uh, luck is the word we use to mean something that's random. And um, random is just a word we use for those things that we can't understand how the causes work. Everything's the result of causes and conditions. So nothing is really luck. But some people enjoy the fruits of actions that are very positive disproportionately to others. Some people have more good luck and some people have more bad luck. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their karma. Right. So that's a qualified yes. There's room in the world for luck. Yeah. As long as we understand that, that there may be some kind of being, some deva, some brahma somewhere, who sees things so much better than I, and say, that wasn't luck at all. Here, let me show you how to <laughs> Well, okay, I, I knew a person who had all the bad luck. And I still wonder if it was my responsibility to help her and take care of her when stuff would just happen. It's not your responsibility, but it is an opportunity. 
an opportunity for you to make good karma for yourself and engage in wholesome actions and be of aid and benefit to somebody else. And you're under no obligation. It's not your responsibility, but it will benefit you as well as that other person. And so that'd be a really good reason for doing it. But if you start doing it out of a sense of responsibility, you're just going to probably bring up some aversion, and now you're going to make some bad karma for yourself even while you do a good thing for them. But you have to be careful. So I'll mind, we'll come back again, mindfulness. Got to know what's going on here. What am I really doing? Why am I doing it? And do I really want to do this? I keep on seeing that it's like the mindfulness, the mindfulness practice is behind all of this. Exactly. To be able to achieve this, yeah. the mindfulness has got to be there. Mindfulness has got to be there, and you've got to develop it. And there's all kinds of practices that you can do to help reinforce it. I think you were going to ask her. I was going to say something about mindfulness or ask about that. I mean, because I think a lot of things that we interpret as lucky or unlucky are just the result of mindfulness, too. You know, whether we find a $20 bill on the street or, or whether we walk past that and don't notice because we're so self-absorbed in our mind, you know, and then the person next to us notices it, you know, and that's it, mindfulness. So like a lot of these things, like, you know, because like, I notice when I'm, if I'm really, like, self-absorbed or periods in my life where I'm really self-absorbed, all kinds of bad things happen. Well, that's for sure, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, it's like you're, you're unlocked, you know, you have bad luck. At, at, at the end of a week or two of mindlessness, you'd say, man, I had a lot of bad luck. <laughs> Whereas the Deva who's watching all this is luck, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to read you another quote. This was not from the Buddha, if you can believe that. <laughs> Source unknown. But it's about what we were just talking about, mindfulness, mindfulness and karma. Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. I th that's not from the Buddha, but it's a beautiful description of karma. So, so we've come to the end of right view. And what we've been discussing is, of course, mundane right view. Super mundane right view is where you have the inside experiences, where you realize these truths directly, when you see through the illusion uh, for yourself and in such a way that it dispels the illusion. But mundane right view affirms that we have an influence on our destiny, and it opposes the deterministic view that our present choices and future circumstances are predetermined. And I think that's a very, very important thing. Because it's a line of thinking that people often slip into, is that things are deterministic. Can I really, do I have any control really? Can I do anything about this? And of course, the old misunderstanding of karma played into that enormously. You're sexually abused as a child because it was your karma. I wonder what you did in your last life. You have cancer, it must be your karma. You're born poor, it must be your karma. And that's, that's just so totally wrong. <laughs> just so totally and completely wrong. 
But you do have, you can change your destiny. You can recreate yourself in the most positive way. And in such a way that you become a Buddha. You can make yourself into a Buddha. There may be many steps between where you are and that place. But there's not a single one of those steps that isn't just that. It's just a simple little step. And if you keep taking the steps one after another, you will get there. Super mundane right view, which it's not going to help us too much to talk about right now, overturns the nihilistic view that we are a separate self in a world of chance whose existence terminates with death. And some of the things that we've talked about make it more difficult for us to take solace in the idea that we have an eternal self. Maybe he's going to end up in heaven, he's maybe going to get reincarnated as the son of some rich guy like Mitt Romney or something. <laughs> it's harder to hold on to and take comfort in those kinds of notions as you work through this kind of understanding of right view. And what the mind tends to do is that instead of seeing through the illusion of self to say, oh, well, the self that I am, I guess it's just going to be annihilated when I die. And that's a nihilistic view. And that is clearly not what this leads to. Absolutely does not. And so you have to keep that in mind. And if you ever find your thinking starting to go in that direction, that, oh, this is a kind of reductionistic materialism. Oh, I'm nothing but this body, and when this body turns to dust, that's it. It's all over with. It's not true, but you have to do the work to see what is true. But if, if that was all this was leading to, it'd be better off to leave you to pursue your desires in a world of delusion. <laughs> Are we there to talk with cake? What's that? Talk with cake, anyone? Talk with cake, anyone? <laughs> talk you, cake. You're seriously going to leave it right there? Really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave everything right there. <laughs> I have a quick question, which may not be too quick, but I have a really, really hard time reconciling the, t- the Buddhist teachings on karma with his teachings on impermanence and emptiness. Because, you know, when you get into this, I'm the owner of the karma, I created the karma, it seems like I, 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 and I'm creating this virtuous self, and, you know, the self is getting better. And then, but wait, there is no self. What is this? The impermanent empty self. You know, so it seems like they don't fit, but... Okay, well, th- now this is an important point. I'm glad you brought it up. And <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll repeat the question. The question is, all this about karma, I'm creating karma, I'm reaping the fruits of my karma, I, I, I. And it seems like this is is in direct contradiction with the, the idea that the self is impermanent and empty. And it is. But, <laughs> but, the thing is that what you need to remember is you have to start where you are. Where you are 
you're coming from the place of I. Where you are, you have desires and aversions. And it's not going to do you any good to try to repress those. Far better to turn those to good use. Turn your selfish desires into more unselfish desires. Turn your unwholesome desires into more wholesome ones. Uh, likewise with your aversions. Um, if you're going to experience aversion, then feel aversion for the suffering of others, the wrongs in the world, and things like that. And let that guide you to try to take an action to relieve the suffering of others, or to correct the wrongs in the world, things like that. Um, you have to desire your own liberation to start out on the path. So if you were to look at this and say, okay, right view, I got it. I'm no I, so therefore, I'm not going to... I can't allow myself to desire to practice the Dharma. Because of the, you start where you are. We're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. You're working with what you've got. It makes it really, really important for you to know where you're going. Because right view is a map. Where you are, where you want to get, and how to get from here to there. And you can use it to tell when you're off course. So, um, like she was saying, helping out the unlucky person. So that would be like, oh, I know that I should do this. It would be kind of me as a mundane act of good karma. But then when you're a little bit more awakened, like you would just immediately run to help that person because help is needed. And you can, you know, so that's super mundane. Is that what you were saying? Well, when you've come to when when you've come to a certain level of realization, uh, it's going to be the only natural thing to do. The distinction between yourself and the other is is not going to be dominating your thinking, even if you're still experiencing yourself as separate. You're coming from a place of, of your pain is my pain. If there's something that I can do to relieve your pain, you know, if my left hand itches, my right hand scratches. But before then, sometimes you begin just following precepts for no other reason than you said you would. Or because you're attached to the idea that, well, this is going to be good for me in the long run. That's still a lot better than not keeping a precept. We start where we are. And it builds up momentum and it goes faster and faster. So, uh, well, time passes quickly when you're having fun. <laughs> We've got right intentions and virtue to talk about. <clears throat> and it's obviously going to be a bit of a consolidated discussion. I would suggest that we take a 20-minute break now. Actually, I'm not suggesting that I've made a decision.